You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Welcome to the second part of this podcast with Sam Brown. In this part, she talks about the loss of her mother. Now, normally I don't talk a lot during the interviews I conduct, but here I also talk about the loss of my own mother. It's one of the things we have in common, and it's not morbid, but reflective and sensitive. So I hope you enjoy this enlightening look into the life and music of Sam Brown. For me, it proves that we are not just made up of what happens to us in our lives, but how we react and change and develop from those events. Want big savings on best-in-class supplements? From November 21st to 28th, you can save 25% on all of Bioptimizer's products. No restrictions and no limits. This is their biggest sale of the year, and it won't happen again until 2023, which means right now is the best time to stock up on Magnesium Breakthrough, P3OM Probiotics, Mass Zymes, and more. Just go to www.bioptimizers.com slash podcast 10 and enter podcast 10 for 25% off any order during 2022 Black Friday, November 21st through 28th. Do you think there was a certain naivety on your part in terms of knowing what the music industry is or definitely was at that point. I don't know if it is because I'm not really that involved in it. But, you know, if that really was that and that you were actually quite naive to expect it to be something different. I absolutely was totally naive. Um, I wasn't, I had no concept of what the music industry was. I I lived with music and musicians. I didn't live in the music industry. It was a horrible shock. It was a really horrible shock. You know, because I'd I'd seen, I suppose the the most I've seen of it was my dad and his attitude towards publicity, which he didn't really like it. But he was basically like, you don't show the bastards anything. You know, you don't give yourself away. You don't tell the truth in interviews. You don't, you know, you tell them what, you know, it's all an act. Whereas as the first thing he said to me was about our our meeting. And I suppose what I took away from my dad's attitude, which I do understand, and I think it, it provides a safety net and it's sensible, actually. It is sensible because it draws, you know, it gives people boundaries, which is good. But for me, um, and I know this can sound incredibly hippie, but every person that I meet is there. They, you know, you are you and I am meeting you. And that is, to me, valuable. Um, and because I'm not doing it to, you know, to further my career because I I mean I was actually because I was working for a record company but from my own point of view what was more important was how I was spending my time and whom I was spending my time with does that make sense yeah you said something very interesting there you said I was working for a record company (laughs) now isn't that's you know maybe the reality but that is to me it's a weird thing to say is it yeah when you're an artist it's like I don't know. It's like, fuck well, them, this is me. <laughs> you know, this is what yeah, I want to do. You, yeah, but actually having the confidence to do that is, I didn't have the confidence to do that. You know, I was on the back foot already because I didn't look the part. I didn't act the part. And I didn't want to do the things they wanted me to do. So everything was a compromise and a battle. And and when you, you know, the thing is when you make music and you write songs, at this point, I should say, I've been to America to write with people, I'd written with lots of other people. I collaborated with people. I'd been working with musicians. I'd been doing music for, let me think, you know, probably six or seven years already. 
And I think it was uh, it was a shock because they just weren't interested in music and they didn't know the first thing about it as far as I could tell. You know, they didn't know when something felt right. And when you work in music, it's really important that it feels right because it's not like working in an orchestra or you know, you're making it up. You know, if you go in to do a backing vocal session, you usually write the backing vocals. You usually create the backing vocals. And, you know, and that's how it was. So to have it sort of formularized and set in front of you and it's like, but you can't do that and you can't do this and you have to do this and you have to behave like that. And, you know, it's just, it wasn't that I was a, a difficult person, but it was a shock. Is that what happened with the second album? Because there must have been enormous pressure on you to come back with another stop. (laughs) Well, I think they wanted that. And to me, that seemed incredibly short-sighted. I did, however, write at least three rocking blues soul ballads, which are really good. And, you know, there's there's a... Sorry, there's someone outside my window, Steve. I don't know what's going on. Going to shut the window. <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, so I think uh, I did do that. But the thing about stock was it wasn't indicative of my music anyway. It's the one that they picked up on, but it was the you know it was the odd one out definitely. Um, and the blues soul element for me came later, really, when I started working with Jules, and I started to really understand it and where it came from and. And, you know, all that sort of stuff musically. One one thing we have in common, and this is a tough one, it's a tough one for me as well, is I nursed my mum who had mm-hmm. cancer um, for three years. She had lung cancer. She was a lot older. She was 93 when she died. Um, and I'd been incredibly close to my mum uh, in my life. Yeah. And in the last 15 years, I live in Germany and I would travel backwards and forwards and look after her. And it grew and grew and grew until I lived there the last three years and accompanied her until the moment she died. So I, I went through that whole process. And I hope this isn't difficult because I do find talking about it valuable for me as well. That yeah. when her diagnosis came, I mean, I was with her when her diagnosis came and it's obviously incredibly difficult for the person when they get that diagnosis, but it's also incredibly difficult. And I would imagine it was also incredibly difficult for you at that moment, because like me, I was trying to be strong and trying to say to her, okay, you know, like there's still time. Hopefully we can enjoy these things and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And at the same time in my head, and I wondered if that was there with you that I was thinking, shit what the fuck am I going to do without mum and I just wondered if you went through that whole process as well and how you remained strong or did you manage to talk about it with your mum well yes uh okay so uh, where do I start with this Uh, it wasn't so my mum went to the she was 50 when she died she was very young um and she uh she discussed she only she discovered she had cancer because I made her go to the doctors I said you've got to go that's not right go to the doctors and she went and she was diagnosed with bowel cancer um now my mum and I uh we were very very close and we worked together a lot and we had a filthy sense of humor and we 
when she was diagnosed, uh, I can't remember the time scale, but around that time, we got pissed one night and we wrote three pages. It was, it was basically, you know, it's like, well, Mrs. Brown went to the doctor with her pile swinging gently between her thighs. And, you know, it was absolutely the whole thing was hysterical. So basically, completely different to your experience. We both completely took the piss out of it is what happened initially. Um, and then I think my mum was, my mum was a very, she really wanted to be happy all the time. She very much felt strongly that there was no point ever in being negative. She was completely positive. Uh, she changed her diet. She looked after herself, but she didn't want to read about it. She didn't want to talk about it. Um, we, myself and my brother uh, said, look, it would be really good if you did just, this is a bit further on, if you did just go and have do a bit of counselling, you know, or see somebody. And she went and she came back. She said, I'm not bloody going back there. I said, why not? They said, they made me cry. I'm not doing that again. You know, and it was like, because, you know, she hadn't necessarily had a really easy time of it. Um, so I think... Uh, she basically ignored it. Mum basically ignored it. And I think that and she just lived her life to the best of her ability outside of what she had to do. So she, she had bowel cancer and they operated on that. And uh, then they found she had secondary liver cancer, which is what killed her. Um, and uh, she just remained very positive. She knocked up a whacking credit card bill by buying dresses from Vogue, which I think she left for my dad. Um, and she just blipped, she sit, I remember her being in the, cause she had health insurance, which I don't have, but she was in the London clinic and she'd be there with all the magazines with it hooked up to her chemo, you know, which made her so very ill. And she'd be there and she'd be going, and she'd flip through and she'd go pass me the phone and she had a landline obviously in those days. And she phoned, she, and she phoned up both. She said, yep, yeah, can you, I want to buy the dress on page 195. Yep. 2000 pounds yep that's fine in white thank you yes and she literally just she was it was like you bollocks to you cancer i'm i am gonna really live my life and she she did she looked amazing she carried on singing she very publicly dealt with her cancer in holland uh so no i've seen excerpts on tv shows yeah, i've been watching yeah. them and quite you know i felt like oh god that's a really tough in a live show in front of a live audience to ask about someone's cancer when clearly, and you can see in your mother's face that she's presenting hope, but at the same time, you have this feeling she knows. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and that, yeah absolutely. She said something like, well, this, they, said, they said there's nothing that can be done, but there is another treatment. So she was grasping onto a little bit of hope, yeah. which I experienced with my mum, that everything was always this little bit of hope that it isn't, that it isn't going to happen. And, yeah. and I thought, wow, that, she's a she's a powerful woman to be able to deal with that situation and sing on a show yeah. do you know what I mean yeah yeah she was she was amazing and and you know she really had no confidence and so it you know she made her she made she made her last years really count she really did and that and in Holland they have um there's a couple of places and it's called the Vicky Brown house because she became quite famous in Holland and it's a place where people can go to talk to other people with cancer, to discover alternative therapies, 
And and actually, I think, you know, I I learned, I mean, I was very angry after my mum died. And I've seen a couple of interviews that I did where I was like, whoa, you know, you are really struggling there, you know. But um, I did learn a lot from it. And I think when your life is hopeless, when really there is not going to be a happy ending, what are you going to do? Are you going to go, oh, well, it's going to be a bad ending. I just won't bother. Are you going to go, I'm just going to crawl into a hole? No, you're not. You're going to do positive things that make you feel happy and are good. And, you know, and that's what she did. And it was lovely, lovely to see. One Um, of my most amazing memories of my mother was two nights before she died. Um, and at that stage, we'd all—I'd got a hospital bed in the front room, and I'd slept next to her for oh. two weeks. And you do everything—I mean, and I mean everything—at that point, obviously. But we were incredibly <laughs> close. And um, two nights before she died, she said, "I want to talk to you." And I knew this was going to be the last communication. You know, I knew this was going to yeah. be the moment that she was going to say what she wanted to say. And it was the most beautiful thing, and it will never ever leave me that she told me what she wanted for my life. You know, she started off and she said, I want you to meet a man who is as kind to you as you have been to me. And then she looked from the future to say what I was doing with my life all along the lines of what I want in my life. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So I have this sort of vision of when I'm low uh, and I feel like, oh, God, things aren't going that well. Then I think of that moment and it will pull me back. And I wondered if you had a moment with your mum that you don't have to tell me what it is but that moment where you can cherish and you can look back and and that gives you the 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 will to carry on um I don't think there is a specific moment for me actually um but I think as I get older um we I have so many good memories of being with my mum And I think what happened for me was when she died, um, a part of her, sounds really bad, uh, but a part of her lived on in me, you know, so I started to recognise her in myself, almost like she was inhabiting me, you know, and I think, and it is, it's, it's definitely a subconscious thing, I don't think it's a conscious thing, so whether it's my own brain doing that for me, or whether it's a real thing where part of my mother's spirit does inhabit my body, I don't know. But, you know, it's fine with me because it means she's there. Um, And obviously I have children and it is so sad because she was by far the nicest person in our family. The rest of us are twats, really. Uh, (laughs) I mean, you created an album um, in her honour. I did. Afterwards, 43 Minutes, um, which I was listening to this morning and it completely moved me. Oh, (laughs) God. Um, no, because I wanted to listen to it before the before the interview, and it completely moved me because I have the you know a similar experience, obviously, and that and I thought that was wonderful. And what you said at the end, my mother is with me, and I I don't know what that means either. I do think it's just that you're so closely connected that they do feel like they're with you for the rest of your life, and yeah. that is a very beautiful thing. One thing that I had afterwards was a complete reorientation. Because your parents, if you imagine like being on a train and your parents or and I think your closest parent is the train ahead. So they're the ones you're, you know, it's like you're orienting yourself towards the train ahead. You're following them. And then that train's gone. And it's like 
oh fuck, what do I do with my, where do I go now? What do I do with my life? And that yeah. album is for me, someone who's trying to grasp that and someone who's going through that, through that process, which is the beauty of that album. Was it, you know, you mentioned that it was hell afterwards and the, these interviews where you don't even sort of recognize yourself today, but was that a moment of reorienting yourself and really like, deciding what to value in life had changed? Um, yes, it was. I think it was all of those things. Um, one of the reviews of the album said it was therapy. And I think in some ways it was. I mean, I it took me, I don't know how long it took me to write the album, but I literally was just at home. I was very lucky. I had I had, a, had house in Stoke Newington, which I loved. I had my piano in the, in the living room and... Uh, and I just hold up and luckily I could afford to not worry about money. And I just took the time I needed and I wrote the album and I played it again and again and then we recorded it. Um, but I think uh, I think it's quite interesting lyrically because, as you say, it has got everything in there, hasn't it? You know, and, and strangely, 43 minutes has been by far the most the most I've been connected with my audience. So I get a lot of letters and certainly at the time. So, so basically I recorded it and then uh, uh, Howard Berman at uh, the record company, who's head managing director of the record company, said his words were creatively, it's brilliant, commercially it's a disaster. And he wanted me to just record a cover or something and stick it on the end. So they had a sync and I said, I, I don't think so, you know. So eventually, so we couldn't get the album back, but, but I was a recouped artist. So eventually, because my manager was arguing with the people there and blah, blah, blah. And I just went in one day and said, look, Howard, I said, we, I don't think we have a, a future working relationship. Um, and I'm fully recouped. I'd like to go. And he let me go. It took me a while to get the album back. But then I did gigs. Uh, Herbie Flowers helped me enormously in. He'd say, oh, there's this little gig by me in a church. Why don't should we go and play a few songs off your album? Because he played on the album. So I did little bits and pieces like that. And then and then what happened was that really grew. It was it never sold loads of copies, but this connection with the audience grew because, as we talked about before, the pain in whatever form it was in was in the album. And actually, I think people, and certainly for myself, if I listen to music. I want to hear the essence of the person that I'm listening to and, and, and people just really related to it because of course, everybody loses somebody, you know? So it was an interesting, really interesting thing to look back on now. You know. Want big savings on best in class supplements from November 21st to 28th. You can save 25% on all of Bioptimizer's products, no restrictions and no limits. This is their biggest sale of the year, and it won't happen again until 2023, which means right now is the best time to stock up on Magnesium Breakthrough, P3OM Probiotics, Masszymes, and more. Just go to www.bioptimizers.com slash podcast10 and enter podcast10 for 25% off any order during 2022 Black Friday, November 21st through 28th. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. How important was it for you to be the mother after having the mother that you had? 
Um, well, I think uh, I don't think I did. I didn't retreat. I I retreated from music industry life. I, I think what happened was basically I realised throughout my mum's illness, so before and after she died, that what I was doing wasn't me. You know, all that I did a lot for I mean, I was three years on the road promoting stock. It's a lot, you know, 20 interviews a day all over the world. It was hard work. Had a great time, but I didn't do any music. And um, I think I just knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do, regardless of whether I was successful or not. So, so basically, my musical life, I still kept writing. So I was still writing and working. Um, and so, and of course, the Pink Floyd thing came up, which was great. Um, so it wasn't having children, I would say, really was a chemical decision rather than uh, a psychological decision. Um, I was ready to have kids. I wanted to have kids before my mum died, but that didn't happen. It took me a long time to get pregnant. So um, I didn't have Vicky till 1993 and then went on tour with Pink Floyd in 1994. So I was still working. I, I didn't kind of withdraw, if you like, at any point. Was the, was the Pink Floyd tour a sort of supportive um, environment? Because as you know, I know Durga, who I, who I adore. Oh, right. I mean, Durga's, yes. a, you know, Durga's a toughie. You know, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> yeah. She's opinionated. Yeah. You know, yeah. she, but she's one of those people you can't ignore. And, mm. you know, she's got a wonderful heart. Mm. And I can imagine there was sort of almost like a, it's, it's some, somewhat of a family atmosphere because Dave Gilmore is actually a very nice person, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so the, the manager and the tour manager, Steve, uh, oh, God, what's his name? Pink Floyd's manager who's dead now, Steve O'Rourke. And Tony, what is the matter with my brain? Getting old, that's trouble. Uh, anyway, basically, they didn't want me to go on the tour, and I got phone calls from both of them. Um, but Dave, because Dave asked me, and this was the third time I've been asked to do Pink Floyd, and I really wanted to do it, but each time he called me, I had other things, and I... Not a person who will cancel everything. I'm, I'm like I've agreed to do this, so I'm doing this. So it never happened. I'd worked with Dave a lot. I'd known him for a long time, um, and I'd done the backing vocals on the Division Bell. So, um, so anyway, I said, "Look, it's fine with me." I said, "But I'm not doing the tour unless my daughter can come with me." She was three months old when we did the album. They were like, "You can't bring a baby on this tour." Blah 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 blah. And they're both lovely men, uh, both of them. Howard, Tony Howard, Steve O'Rourke. And, uh, and I did end up going. And actually, Vicky was just the joy of the tour. Everyone loved her and we had a great time. Um, I, Durga was kind of partying quite a lot at that point. So her life and mine didn't really, I mean, obviously we went fine and the, you know, the tour was fine. But I did get very close to Claudia because Claudia was a bit more of a stay in her room. She's a bit slower. Uh, total, you know, she liked liked to join. So uh, she was. We'd go out for walks with Vicky, and she's very Peckham. She very sadly died. Um, I don't know if you know, but a few a couple of years ago now, way too young. Uh, but we got great, and yes, it was. You know, they really looked after us, and there were lots of other kids on the tour. So Nick and Nettie's children were there. Had two boys. Um, uh, Dave and Polly were just getting together, but Dave's kids were around as well. So, you know, there was, yes, it was a family atmosphere. We were very looked after. 
That was a great thing to do. How do you see your development in in your albums over the years in terms of their um, musicality? Because you you know you you said you look back and and you see um, the stop era as well, I'm gonna I'm gonna choose a word for you, but it isn't really <laughs> right. Sort of more bubblegum in relation to what <laughs> you do what you do today. So I'm just yeah. wondering how you see your own musical pro- progression and how you value your own music today. And do you find the latter stuff much better in your own terms than what you did earlier? Um, no, I, I think I, well, I think what, what we're talking about here is production values. I don't think my songwriting has changed that much. I think hopefully I've got a bit better at it. Um, <laughs> uh, wait till you hear my new stuff. Um, and um, but I, it really is about production, isn't it? You know, and I think I was so sort of. Um, it's quite interesting when you're a sort of uh, blossoming singer songwriter, which I saw myself as a singer songwriter. So Joni Mitchell, I didn't mention before, but you know, a big fan of singer songwriters from a very early age. Um, but the record company, it just wasn't fashionable. So, um, so Stuart Horner, my publisher, who I'm still really with now. Uh, sent me over to America and then hence I wrote Stop and some other bits and pieces. Um, but I think uh, I think I've become much more aware of genres as I've got older and I think that it's a shame that there's not more creat- creativity within record companies where they can, rather than trying to get the artist to do something or criticising them, they focus on one particular aspect of what they do and say, look, why don't we do an album? I mean, because stop was all over the place, you know. I mean, they said to me, you know, it's too many, it's too mixed. Although I think it's one of its strengths, that there was jazz, there was kind of a bit of sort of country, there was dance music, there was, you know. So I would have said, look, how about we've got stop? Why don't we do a blues album? Because that is then something that the artist can relate to and and focus on does that make sense Uh, but I I think I think really what you're talking about is production values and I think that um I just was never very confident I really only got my confidence when I started working with Jules Holland and he was very good for me as a friend and still is um and encouraged me to be who I was which hadn't really happened up up until then and as close as I am to my brother um, he's a very strong personality where music is concerned Um, and I had to at some point kind of uh, disconnect from that not with Pete because we're very very close but I I, I needed to go off on my own and just try things on my own uh, because I'm quite slow and uh and have to do things at my own pace and on my own because I can't bear people watching what I'm doing. So I'm not a person to go and go, no, it's got to be like this. We're going to do this, you know. Um, so that took a long time for me to do. Um, and I still don't really have a concept of what that sounds like to other people. I mean, obviously, it's much more organic, certainly the last few bits and pieces I've done. Uh, but, uh, yeah, does that answer the question, Steve? Yeah, well, the other thing I wanted to talk about, because you lost your voice yeah um and that must be for a singer a real you know a real loss it's you know it's a really big thing if you're a singer to lose your voice and I just wondered in essence how 
you have come over that and be able to say, okay, I can move on from this and I can still do things without having um, this, you know, what has been special to me my whole life, uh, which is my voice. Well, I don't really, I mean, I, I'm really honest. So I lost my voice in 2007 and I've only just got to the point which you've just so very beautifully put. Um, and I think it was because in lockdown, I started, because everyone was saying to me, you can still write, you're a really good writer, you know. But when I wrote, I used my voice to write the songs. And so, you know, it's difficult. Um, but I've, I've been teaching ukulele since 2010, which I love, but which hasn't been great for my voice and still isn't because I have, even if it's really bad, I have to sing to get them to play because people who are not musicians, they don't just suddenly pick up and sing loud. And if you're not singing, it's very hard to get the feel of music going. So I, ha- I had to sing, which has been destructive, I have to say, but it's also been good in, in other ways. But in lockdown, what happened was I got back in touch with my friend Danny Shogger and I said, we've been talking about writing for ages. And he's a very, he's always been great with me. If I've if things have been difficult in the past and I've had trouble with doing vocals, I mean, Pete's fantastic to work with as well. Uh, but Danny is very, he's a real, he's a gentle friend. He's very kind and he gets it. And so I've done, the work I've done with him on occasions, he's very good with vocals. So, um, and so I said, you fancy writing? I said, I think I'm about ready to have a go. I said, I've got a few ideas. And I said, I've written a couple of sort of uh, instrumental electronica things. Do you want to hear them? I sent them over. He said, oh, yeah. He said, well, we'll, we'll do a bit of writing. Anyway, we've written a, an electronica album, <laughs> but it has got singing on and it's all auto-tuned. And I think, well, fuck it. I've earned my stripes. If anyone's allowed to auto-tune, I am. And I look back and I think, God, I sang so in tune. And now it's so awful. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, what what you is know, it about exactly. the ukulele that you love? Tell me what, what, you know, it's an odd, it just seems... Well, I don't know. Maybe it isn't an odd choice, but in my head, it's sort of like, oh, the ukulele. It's an odd, and I know it's very, it's sort of in, isn't it? Oh, there you go. There you go. Sam Brown okay. on the ukulele. Yeah, cool. All right. So you could play anything on the ukulele. I haven't got my glue on now, so I'm going to be a bit rubbish, but you can play. Let me think. Um, uh, okay. Uh, oh, God. So what most people do is they go for a pop song that they want to play, like but like uh, Baba Love, excuse my voice, Baba Happiness, Hello Loneliness, I think I'm gonna cry. All right, okay, so you've got that. That's your obvious thing, three chords. Wow, I can play an instrument, that's brilliant, hooray. But then you can do things like, uh, see if you know what this is. Ready? Pimple oh, was a young man. Pimple was Is it Pimple Yeah, everything's Oh my god. I played the silver ball from Soho down the right. And I still played the ball. All right, so you can play that on a ukulele. You can play putting on the Ritz. You can play beautiful songs. I mean, the famous one is. 
So, you, you know, there's so much you can do. Um, and I think it's a really lovely way to learn music because learning music, there's so much you have to learn. There's chord structure, there's, you know, how what, what a chord is made up of. There's strumming patterns because essentially, like a guitar, it's a rhythm instrument. Um, and I suppose what really uh, got me doing it was I couldn't play it. So because I couldn't play it, I was learning and a couple of people said, can you teach me? So I was like, well, yeah, but I don't really know what I'm doing myself. I've learned with my tutors and it's been, been great, great fun, good fun. You can't take it too seriously though, obviously. That's brilliant. It's brilliant to have an outlet and to be able to do something um, creatively because you obviously absolutely need to express your creativity today as well and one thing you said at the beginning was that you know that sometimes life can you know give you shit and you know you've had your fair share throughout your life but I started with something which I want to say again that I really do think one thing you haven't lost (laughs) and you may have lost your voice along the way but (laughs) one thing you haven't lost is this innate warmth and kindness Uh it's still there and it was lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Sam Brown. Lovely to talk to you. Can we go for a drink one day, Steve? We can certainly go for a drink. And one thing I promise, I will never, ever try to sing in public again. So that's it for this Sam Brown interview. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And maybe you also felt like I did that Sam's experience had some commonality to my own. Please rate and don't forget to listen to the other interviews. I'll see you next time. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Want big savings on best-in-class supplements? From November 21st to 28th, you can save 25% on all of Bioptimizer's products. No restrictions and no limits. This is their biggest sale of the year, and it won't happen again until 2023, which means right now is the best time to stock up on Magnesium Breakthrough, P3OM Probiotics, Masszymes, and more. Just go to www.bioptimizers.com slash podcast 10 and enter podcast 10 for 25% off any order during 2022 Black Friday, November 21st through 28th.